Today we are going to be talking about the end of the world, which is something that we have actually spent quite a bit of time already talking about because we just finished up our study of 1 Thessalonians uh, you know, a month and a half ago or so. And a lot of what's said in 1 Thessalonians pertains to um, the rapture, uh, the, you know, the, the second coming of Christ, the end of the world, and all those things. And so I promised myself that I would not even reference those passages in, in this sermon today because you guys have already heard them recently enough. Uh, and if you haven't, you can go to our website and listen to our messages from 1 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, where we go into much greater detail uh, about these issues than we're going to be able to go into today. Um, we're, what we're doing is we're going through this series called Focus on the Things That Matter. And it's really kind of a, a, a brief overview of systematic theology. I spent four semesters in seminary reading through uh, four volumes, uh, each of which was six to eight hundred pages in length, talking about the subjects that we've been talking about. And uh, like I said, there were four volumes. We're going into the fourth volume starting today. <laughs> So uh, if you want to spend the next, you know, two years reading f through the, the first three volumes and, and uh, you know, the fourth volume too, uh, you know, that's, that's your prerogative. But what we're trying to do here is give kind of an overview of these important things uh, in, in Christian theology and in, in our understanding of God, things that we should focus on because they matter. And one of those things is the end of the world. And it's really interesting to, to note um, and and to, to do some research into some of the theories and um, predictions about when the end of the world would come, in 1988, Reader's Digest had, uh, had an article, featured an article where they outlined some of the predictions uh, that people have made through the ages about when and, and sometimes how the end of the world was going to come. So I wanted to start out by kind of talking about some of those. Um, they only go back to 960 in, in this article, but actually you can trace predictions back to uh, the second century. No, no problem at all. They're out there. Uh, anyway, in 960, someone named Bernard of Thuringia, a theologian out of Germany, he calculated that the year 992 AD was most likely going to be the year that the world would come to an end. And not surprisingly, uh, people panicked. Uh, every time people are making predictions about the end of the world, you see some people panic, and people did panic throughout the European continent until, 19, until 992, not 1992, until 992 came and went, 1992 came and went too, but 992 came and went with no event transpiring, which brought about the end of the world. So people were relieved, right? Oh, this isn't the end of the world, but that relief didn't last long because... Soon after that, people started saying, oh, the end of the world must be year 1000 AD. After all, we all know from the book of Revelation, you know, the, the thousand years, that's obviously a significant number. So year 1000, that's going to be the year that the world comes to an end. And some people were, and throughout Europe were so convinced that they actually moved. That they migrated down to Jerusalem so they could be sure not to miss the end of the world in year 1000 AD. And of course, it didn't happen. Didn't happen in year 1000 AD. Now, a few hundred years later, someone calculated that the world had been created in year 5590 BC. I think they're probably off by a couple years there, but 5590 BC. And, and they said, you know, the world is only going to last for 7,000 years. And so thus the date for the end of the world was going to be in 1410 until 1410 came and went with nothing happening that ended the world once again. Uh, a German astrologer named Johann Stoffler predicted that a worldwide flood was going to destroy the earth on February 20th 1524. Uh, Christians were actually so convinced that he was accurate, that he was spot on, that, that this flood was coming, that people throughout Europe started building arcs. And there's a report of one guy actually being trampled because he'd built the best ark and people trampled him to get onto his ark before February 20th of that year. So obviously it didn't happen. Uh, but so, so what Stoffler did is he revised his date. He said, oh, it wasn't 1524. Obviously, it's 1588, obviously. Uh, so that obviously came and went without any catastrophic events ending 
the world. Uh, in 1761, there were two minor earthquakes that were felt in London, and they were 28 days apart. And a former soldier named William Bell started proclaiming, oh, th these were 28 days apart. There's another one coming in 28 days, but this earthquake is going to be so big, it's going to be the end of the world. Or maybe it's going to be a flood. Not sure why he, why he had to you know, give a, an alternative option there. But yeah, he said that there was going to be, in 28 days, the end of the world coming. And obviously, it never happened. Even though people were so convinced that he was accurate that a lot of people took to the seas so that if that flood came, they'd be ready. Uh, Joseph Smith. Anybody in here ever heard of Joseph Smith? The guy who started Latter-day Saints, uh, the guy who started Mormonism in the mid-19th century. He once wrote, quote, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God, and let it be written, the Son of Man will not come in the clouds of heaven until I'm 85 years old. <laughs> He's way older than 85 now, and it, it didn't happen. Um, having studied both the Bible and these ancient uh, Egyptian uh, mystical messages from the Egyptian pyramids, Charles Taze Russell, anybody ever heard of him? Yeah, he might have. He's the one who started the Jehovah's Witnesses. Charles Chase Russell concluded that in uh, 1874 that the second coming of Christ had already happened, but God was being merciful, and so he was giving everybody a period of 40 years whereby they could join his faith or forever be destroyed. And when it didn't happen in 1914, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the followers of, of Charles Taze Russell, said, okay, we'll, we'll just adjust our date. It's not going to happen in 1914. It'll happen in 1915 and then 1918, and then 1920, and then 1925, 1941, 1975, and 1994, and finally they gave up, thankfully. They, they stopped trying to predict the exact year. Now they just say that the world is going to end 6,000 years after it was created, but nobody knows exactly when it was created. Uh, Nostradamus is another one. You guys have probably heard of him. Um, he said that in 1999, there would be an alien invasion that would destroy the earth. I don't, know, I don't know where that came from. Uh, no one's sure of the date, but apparently at some point in time, Chicken Little said the sky's falling, <laughs> and <laughs> obviously the sky is still up there. But no, seriously, the sad reality is that throughout history, people have been trying to predict exactly when the end of the world would come. In fact, a couple months ago, we saw this group in California, Harold Camping's followers, say, yeah, the end of the world is coming on, I think it was May 21st or 22nd or something like that. And so they abandoned everything that they had, and they were ready, and it didn't happen. And what did he do? He said, well, it was a, a spiritual return of Christ, not a physical return. Anyway, the, the, the sad reality is that there are some, some well-meaning Christians throughout history who have tried to predict when the end of the world was going to be coming. And what we see is that people tend to go a little bit crazy when it comes to these prophecies about the end of the world. Uh, there's no denying that for a lot of people, common sense just gets tossed out the window when they're talking about these prophecies from the Bible. And I'm, I'm going to be the first one to say, yeah, I, I used to go a little bit crazy and throw common sense out the window. I remember when I was at Dallas Theological Seminary, my first semester, Israel had just entered into some treaty with, uh, with the Palestinians, and I was sure this is the end. It's coming like any day now. And there were some other students who were thinking the same thing. Whoa, this, this is huge. My professor, who uh, you know, obviously knew the Bible a lot better than I did, he tried to bring a voice of reason into the discussion, but I was convinced that he was just wrong. He had no idea what he was talking about. And here, you know, I, I, yeah, I was just this student. Um, I was sure the end of the world was near. Uh, but sadly, I, I wasn't unique in this regard. I, I'm not the only one who has done something like that. I mean, you just turn on your television, and you can find shows dedicated to understanding end times prophecy. And what they'll do is they'll say, they'll, they'll go through recent newspaper clippings and say, see, this, this is all end, end of the world stuff. This is how this is going to tie into that in the Bible. This is how this is going to tie into that in the Bible. And they're just speculating on when the end of the world is going to be. And one of those people who has a show actually predicted that the end of the world was going to be 1988. Didn't happen. But he's still on TV. People are obviously still paying attention to those predictions. But the result of such speculation oftentimes is that people get this, this 
kind of a panic, almost a selfish panic, where they lose focus on the here and now. And as Christians who take the Bible seriously, you know, we, we do want to look forward to the day when Jesus will return in his glory to bring us home. But no matter how difficult life might seem, no matter how depressing the world might be, we need to remember that there are still things that we need to be doing. We still have things in our lives that matter. There's still life to be lived. There's still purpose to be fulfilled. There's still mission to be carried out. There's still responsibilities for us to face. There isn't a single time in the Bible. I wish I would have known this back then. There isn't a single time in the Bible when believers are commended for irresponsibility or losing common sense on the basis of their confidence that Jesus is coming back. But then there's another extreme. There's, there's the one extreme that says, oh, the sky's falling, you know, the, the end of the world's coming any day. But then there's the other extreme where people, um, they, they just don't care. They're, they're apathetic about the return of Christ or the end of the world. They're indifferent. Eh, might happen, might not. If it does happen, I guess I'm ready. If it doesn't, oh well, life goes on. And honestly, this type of person couldn't care less about the return of Jesus, uh, or they dismiss it just altogether. And there's no urgency for evangelizing. There's no uh, urgency for joining in the mission of Christ, which is to seek and save the lost, because there's no clock that's ticking. There's nothing that's imminent. There's nothing that we're waiting for. See, what we need to do is we need to find a balance between this extreme where we're panicked and the other extreme where we're apathetic. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis wrote, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And listen to this. He says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. End quote. So this is a principle that's been true through the centuries. It's as true today as it was the day that Jesus ascended into heaven and promised that one day he would be back. It's true. From the beginning, Jesus' followers were mindful of the end and, and almost uh, anxious, in a sense, of the end, waiting for it to happen. I mean, even before Jesus left, they said, Jesus, is, is, is it now? Is, is it now that you're going to set up your, your throne here in Jerusalem and, and reign? And of course, we know from Revelation that that's going to be for a period of a thousand years. Jesus is going to have an earthly reign. And so they're thinking when Jesus is, is getting ready to leave, they're thinking, is it now? And Jesus says, to paraphrase him, no. And you don't really need to know when that's going to be. For now, wait, and I've got a mission for you. I've got work for you to do, and it's going to take a lot of work. You're going to go into the world bearing my name, witnessing to my name. So last week we discussed uh, the fact that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that salvation is found by no other name, and that nobody ever, ever has an excuse for not knowing about Jesus. Um, and if we believe in that as much as we should, then we're part of Christ's mission of seeking and saving the lost before he returns, just like he instructed his followers to do. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 2 Peter chapter 3. And as you're getting there, let me address one objection that, uh, that some people might throw out there. Some people will say, well, you know, the, the end of the world or the return of Christ is really kind of a kind of an issue that the Bible doesn't touch a whole lot on, and it's kind of vague about, and it's obviously not a really important issue because there's nothing that explicitly tells us when it's going to happen. So to address that type of argument, let me just say that one out of every 30 verses in the Bible, one out of every 30, mentions the subject of the return of Christ or the end of time. 
There are a total of 216 chapters in the New Testament. And out of those 216 chapters, you'll find over 300 references to the return of Christ. That means that the return of Christ is mentioned about one and a half times per chapter. 23 out of the 27 New Testament books mention the subject of the return of Christ. So obviously, this is a really important issue. It's one of the major themes of all of Scripture. It's not minor. It's a principle that should guide our personal lives and our relationships. So if you've got your Bibles open to 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll start with verses 3 and 4, where Peter writes, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That whole last part is what the mockers are saying. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's what the mockers say. Now, anybody have cable TV or anybody ever watch something on the History Channel? You might be familiar with this exact type of thinking, this, this exact type of attitude, because all you have to do is turn to the, the History Channel or maybe the Discovery Channel, and you'll hear people, these scholarly academic theologians, uh, talking about how this belief in the return of Christ is just so primitive. It was this superstitious belief that the early church had. And of course, now we're, we're educated, we're enlightened now, and we know that this was all based on these mythological uh, presuppositions of the early church and the authors of the Bible. And so they dismiss it altogether, and by doing that, they, they're really mocking it. And groups like the Jesus Seminar, um, they, they get a lot of attention. If you, if you watch a, a, a show about the history of Christianity or something like you know the, the authenticity of the Bible on the History Channel, the Jesus Seminar guys are almost always on there. And they'll say there's no literal return of Christ, just like there was no literal resurrection of Christ. So they mock Christianity. They, they mock the Christian faith with their claim that, well, of course, all scholars know this. And by saying that, really what they're doing is saying anybody who believes that Jesus is coming back isn't really a scholar. Uh, likewise, in science classrooms, uh, whether that be in high school or college, uh, students are being taught that uh, these, these early religious beliefs, such as a literal return of Jesus, uh, stemmed from scientific ignorance. The only reason they believed that is because they just, you know, they were all superstitious and they had all these myths back then. And their argument would be something like this. They'll say, of course there's no return of Jesus. People have always speculated about the end of the world. But now we, we've been enlightened. We've evolved past uh, the need for such worthless speculation. And of course, both of these groups are really just punting to blind faith in naturalism. The, uh, the belief, as Carl Sagan used to say, that the, the, the universe is all there was, all there is, and all there ever will be. <coughs> all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be? Really? Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I, I had a chance to, uh, to work as a stockbroker, actually, and uh, started studying the stock market, started looking at, at market trends and everything, and started learning about all these investment vehicles, each one of which comes with this, uh, this qualifying statement, a disclaimer, which releases investment companies like mutual funds and stock brokerages from any kind of legal liability when uh, the stock market drops 500 points like it just did a couple days ago. And that, that disclaimer statement goes something like this. Past, uh, past performance is not an indication or guarantee of future returns. And I, I kind of look at this speculation. Well, you know, they, they used to speculate, but now we don't need to. I kind of look at that in the same way. They say, you know, people have always been wrong about speculating about the end of the world. Therefore, people always will be wrong. Past performance is an indication of future performance. So the fact that people have speculated on the end of the world doesn't mean that the end of the world isn't going to happen. All it means, logically, is that the people who have speculated before have been wrong. That's all it means. There's this assumption that mockers have that the past is an indication 
of the future. That because people have always been wrong, people will always be wrong when they're talking about the end of the world. Now, sometimes in, in certain categories, that can be true. You know, people have always uh, had this belief that the earth was at the center of the universe. Well, we know better now. Okay, you know, that, that's, that's enlightenment. That's scientific knowledge that, that we've gained. But that isn't always true. It, it isn't always true that what people used to speculate on uh, and, and wrongly is always going to be wrong speculation. The fact that people have been waiting for the return of Jesus for 2,000 years now isn't uh, doesn't mean it's, it's an ignorant belief. Just because they've been waiting for 2,000 years, that doesn't prove ignorance. To the contrary, what Peter's telling us here is that the mockers are going to be proven wrong someday. The mockers are actually kind of being mocked here. Peter continues, verses 5 and 6. For when they, mockers, he's talking about, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. You guys love Peter. I mean, if, if you read the stories from, from the gospel narratives, you know, the guy's always got his foot in his mouth. He's always so tactless, so, so uh, crude sometimes almost. Just, you know, he throws something out there and it's like, dude. You couldn't have thought of a better way to say that, or you couldn't have thought about it before it came out of your mouth? Well, here we see, uh, this is great. Peter's done a lot of growing up. Uh, there's hope for the most crude people, because uh, Peter's done a lot of growing up here, a lot of maturing, between the times that he was constantly putting his foot in his mouth when he was around Jesus constantly, and the time that he wrote this. Uh, the old Peter might have said, those mocking idiots. They have no idea what they're talking about. So don't listen to them, those mocking fools. You know, that's what he might have said. But later on in life, Peter has picked up some maturity. He's picked up some tact, uh, if nothing else. So he says, it escapes their notice. You like that? It escapes their notice. I'm going to have to remember that next time I want to call somebody an idiot. It just escapes their notice. <laughs> It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. It escapes their notice. The one thing that characterizes every mocker is that they deny God's existence or and or they deny his ability to act in the world. They don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth. So of course they don't believe that Jesus is going to return. Because that's physically impossible. That was 2,000 years ago, and it's physically impossible, science tells us, for somebody to still be alive after 2,000 years. So, of course, they don't believe that Jesus is going to return because that defies naturalism, the naturalism uh, that, they, that they put their faith in. So not only do they uh, fail to notice that God created the heavens and the earth out of water, out of and by water, but they also, he tells us, they also overlook the flood. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at a, a globe or a map of the world and see that all the continents were at one time one massive body of land. They, they all fit together uh, fairly well. We can, we can you know, say, okay, there's been some erosion, so uh, they don't fit perfectly, but yeah, we can see how they all at one time went together. And, and modern science will teach us that the continents slowly slowly, slowly, like an inch a year, moved apart from one another over a period of billions and billions of years. And again, the speculation is based on an assumption. The assumption that things have always moved at the current pace. They say, okay, we can see that the continents are drifting at one inch per year, roughly whatever, uh, right now. So therefore, the world has always seen this drifting at one inch per year. Um, last week we talked a little bit about the tsunami of 2004 and how that opened uh, gates for the gospel. There was something else kind of neat that came about from the tsunami of 2004. And that is the fact that uh, we, no we noticed the power of water like never before. Our modern science had never seen water do the kind of damage that the tsunami did. In less than a day, maps were changed. Literally, maps were changed. The coastline was considerably different than it was before. And it would take over 
two million years for the map to change that much without the power of water and erosion. Two million years, and it happened in a day. So what we saw there was the power of water. The fact is that there is evidence everywhere you look of a worldwide flood. There's evidence everywhere. And of course, this, this worldwide flood almost uh, spelled the end of the world, and it would have spelled the end of the world if it hadn't been for the fact that God is abounding in love and mercy for humanity. There's no evidence of an asteroid. That's, that's everybody's favorite theory about how the dinosaurs uh, went extinct. You know, there, there was obviously this asteroid. There's no evidence of a giant asteroid that would destroy the Earth. And in fact, if that happened, that would have destroyed all the plankton in the sea and it would have killed all the life in the sea. But instead, what we see is that the animals that survived uh, prehistoric times are usually the animals that are in the water. Alligators, sharks, whales, turtles, things like that. All these reptiles... That are, that are left over from the dinosaurs, in which scientists will say, you know, th these are left over from the prehistoric, you know, dinosaur age. They're all water-inhabiting animals. So the fact is, the only animals that are really extinct, for the most part, are the ones that were on land. But those ones in the sea would have died if an asteroid had destroyed the entire Earth, because all the plankton would have, would have died, and if the plankton's gone, all the fish life is gone. Further, they've, found, uh, they've actually found living red blood cells in dinosaur bones. And if, if these bones were millions and millions of years old, as they say, you would not find red blood cells. But if the animal was buried very suddenly, only several thousand years ago, you would still find red blood cells. And sure enough, in a T-Rex, they have found red blood cells. So there's evidence that these animals were actually very quickly buried in mud, which would give you evidence of a flood. Um, those who do mock the return of Jesus and the end of the world simply fail to notice uh, that the world almost did come to an end. They, they fail to notice that there is evidence everywhere you look of a worldwide flood. One of the great evidences of a worldwide flood is the Grand Canyon. It's one of, the, one of the great wonders of the world. And you look at it and people say, well, looks like this took millions and millions and millions of years of this little river just trickling through the desert, and that's where the Grand Canyon came from. That's, that's how it was formed, over millions of years. But again, that's based on the presupposition that the Grand Canyon has always been eroding at its current pace, this little trickle of water going through the, uh, the bottom of it. Now, I had, been, I had grown up um, you know, being taught that it had taken millions of years, and I took a geology class in college where they, they talked about how you know, it had taken millions and millions of years for the Grand Canyon to be formed. In fact, my geology class, uh, we had an option to go to the Grand Canyon with our professor uh, to look at the Grand Canyon and to study it. Uh, and again, they were teaching that it took millions of years for it to form. But the first time I heard this theory challenged, was actually in church. Uh, I started going to this evangelical free church when I was in college, and one of the very, very first services I went to, they had a guy who was a professor of geology who had taken the, uh, some of the people from the church down to the Grand Canyon, and they had looked at it together, and this guy who, who had a doctorate in geology came back, and he was giving a presentation in front of the church talking about how the Grand Canyon actually is evidence of a worldwide flood. And it debunked everything that I had been taught. But here he was. This guy had his PhD. He knew what he was talking about. What, what, one of the points that he was bringing forward is the fact that in the Grand Canyon, you, it, it's very sharp. The walls are, are straight up and down. The walls of the canyon are straight up and down. And yet what geology actually sees any time that there is a, a river that takes a, a seriously long amount of time to, uh, to develop is that the, the tops are going to be rounded uh, instead of being straight up and down, it should have kind of been a, a valley that came down like that. But that's not how it is. In fact, uh, growing up in the desert, you know, I'm from Las Vegas originally. Growing up in the desert, when a flood would come through town, if, if we, you went out to the desert back then in Las Vegas, uh, you know, we had forts out in the desert and everything. So uh, you, what you'd see is these sharp walls. 
not rounded, but just straight up and down with 45 degree angle walls uh, where the water had run. And that's what we see in the Grand Canyon. And another thing that we see is that the top layer doesn't show a whole lot of evidence of erosion. That's science. That's science. The, 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 the things that I'm talking about here are based on scientific observation. Further, one final thing that he brought up that, that really stunned me um, was the fact that if evolution is true and if, if the Grand Canyon had eroded over millions of years to get to its current point, then what you would find is, uh, is layers of life forms which become progressively more and more complex as you go further down because obviously, you know, if evolution's true, then uh, at the surface, way before, it, you know, the, the Grand Canyon had been eroded, you would have had these really simple life forms and as it went further down, more complicated life forms were coming up into existence according to evolution. But that's not what you see in the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon destroys that theory because there are really complex current life forms where you should only expect to find simple life forms and there are simple life forms where uh, complex life forms should be. They're all mixed together. That gives evidence of a worldwide flood. It escapes the notice of mockers that the world was very close to being destroyed by the waters of a flood. It escapes their notice. Verse 7. But, contrast, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So what Peter's doing here, he's telling us that while the earth was once almost destroyed by water, the real destruction someday is going to come by fire. Not only will the earth be destroyed, but Peter's telling us that the heavens will also be destroyed in this fire. The universe, that's what the heavens is. The, the universe, the sky, everything above ground, basically. It's all going to burn someday. God's going to burn it all up someday. Why? Well, you know, fire is often an image of God's method of purification. His method of cleansing something that is dirty. And our whole universe, as we saw a couple weeks ago, as we studied sin, our whole universe has been tainted by the effects of sin. The whole universe. That's how serious sin is. It's affected the whole universe. And so to purify the universe, the heavens, and to make it new, God is going to burn it in an act of judgment someday. But we should know that God doesn't actually stop there. He doesn't just burn it and say, all done. Actually, this verse should remind us of what we read in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 1, where the, the Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. So John doesn't tell us how the old earth and the old heavens pass away, but Peter does. Fire. Judgment. It's all going to burn. So the current heavens and earth are being kept for the day of judgment and for the destruction of ungodly men. And by the way, when Peter's talking about the destruction of ungodly men here, he's not talking about uh, this theory called annihilation. See, some people have this theory that, uh, that, that God, that, that hell, you know, it has fire and everything. What does fire do? It burns, it destroys, it, it obliterates. And so they have this theory that, um, that when people go to hell, they're actually going to cease to exist uh, completely. They will be annihilated, meaning their soul will go there and then their soul will be burned up and it won't exist anymore. Uh, there are Christians, uh, great Christian scholars, who have believed this. John Stott, if you guys have ever heard of John Stott, he died a couple weeks ago. One of the greatest theologians of our age, he believed in annihilation, but the Jehovah's Witnesses also believe in annihilation. But the word here, the Greek word, um, indicates something very different from, uh, from annihilation. The Greek word here indicates something that is no longer good for the purpose it was initially created for. For example, we find this word in uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 4, where we read, But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? 
And the word wasted there is actually the same word that Peter has used for, uh, for destruction, the destruction of ungodly men. Now, obviously, the perfume in, in, in this story, the perfume hasn't ceased to exist at this point. It, it's been destroyed in the sense that it's ruined. It can't be used anymore for the purpose that it was created for. It was ruined. It was wasted. And that's what's going to happen to ungodly men as well. That's what Peter's telling us. They will be ruined. They will be wasted. The purpose that they were created for will no longer be within their grasp. What's the purpose that we were created for? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We were created for the purpose of fellowship with God. And that door is going to be closed for some people, for these ungodly people. So in that sense, their whole purpose, the whole reason that they were created in the first place is gone. They're just going to be wasted. They're, they're, going to, they're just going to be uh, shut off from God's mercy so that they cannot fulfill the purpose that they were created for, and that is fellowship with God. Peter continues, verses 8 and 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. There he goes again, escape notice. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So Peter's saying, Jesus is going to return. You can be certain of that. He is going to return. That's the message that Peter's trying to drive home here. But we have to remember the whole context of who this was being written to, why he was writing it to them, Peter's writing to a bunch of persecuted Christians, people who were watching their children be fed to lions by the Romans. I mean, we were, they were seeing some, some awful, awful things happening, and they were, uh, they were in line to be next. I mean, they were being persecuted and faced that risk every single day. And without a doubt, they're sitting there thinking, when is Jesus coming back? I, I can't take another day of this. Have you ever thought that? I know I have. I can't take another day of this. Lord, please come back now. When is Jesus going to come back? That's what these people are saying. And Peter's reminder to them is to not let something escape their notice. Uh, remember, the evidence for God creating the earth and almost destroying it with a flood is something that escaped the notice of the mockers. He's saying, don't let this escape your notice. Namely, don't overlook the fact that when Jesus said he's coming back, he was entering eternity. He was going into timelessness. And when Peter says that one day with God is like, or one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, notice the word like. That's a simile. He doesn't say 1,000 years is one day with the Lord. He says it's like it. He's speaking uh, metaphorically. I actually had a conversation with somebody in a bookstore once. He was sure that uh, Jesus was coming back soon because, same thing with the Harold Camping Group, they, they believe this too. They believe that 1,000 years is one day for God. No, he's speaking uh, metaphorically here. It's a figure of speech. And Peter brings this up to show them, to, to demonstrate for them or illustrate to them that Jesus, the Lord, is not slow about his promise. Peter's saying, don't mistake his patience for unfaithfulness. Just because Jesus hasn't come back yet and said that he would be back soon. Don't mistake that for meaning that he's not going to be back, that he's faithless to the promise that he's made. And Peter tells us right here why Jesus hasn't returned yet. It's because he desires that all would come to repentance. That all would come to repentance. And if we belong to him, that should be our desire too. That should be part of our mission too, to see all come to Repentance. We're called to be his hands and his feet while he's on this mission, doing his work through us. Doing works by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Good works that he's prepared from the foundations of the earth for us to walk in. But that's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. He's still saving people. And one of the questions that, that people will sometimes ask is, how do I know the will of God? Anybody ever ask that? I want to know the will of God. I've asked that. I ask that all the time. What's the will of God? Well, here's part of it. His will 
is for people to come to repentance. His will is for people to turn away from selfishness and to abandon themselves and to come to him. That's God's will. If you ever ask that question, there's your answer. That's at least part of your answer. He wants to seek and save the lost. So the call here is to live each and every moment, each and every day, each and every hour, each and every second, in light of the imminent return, the reality of the imminent return of Christ, and to focus on the mission of God, seeking and saving the lost, while there's still time, because his desire is that people turn to him. The call here, as you've heard me say before in our previous studies, is to not get in the habit of living in a way that would tell the world that you don't think he's coming back. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Unexpectedly, right? The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. There's that global warming thing. Again, Peter's telling us that judgment, serious judgment, universe-wide judgment is coming. That the heavens and the earth will face destruction for the sake of purification so that God can replace it with a new heavens and a new earth that won't be tainted, won't be corrupted by the effects of sin. So what's our response to all of this? Listen closely to what Peter says next, verses 11 and 12. Since all these things the heaven, the earth, everything in the whole universe, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? Here's the application of this whole passage. There's nothing written in the Bible that doesn't speak to your life exactly where you are today. Nothing. And sometimes you have to dig for it. Sometimes it's not so obvious. That's one of my jobs is to give that to you guys. Sometimes it's written in black and white language that you absolutely cannot miss. And this passage is one of those passages. Peter spells it out for us. In light of everything that he's told us, the application is, first of all, we should be holy and godly in our conduct. We should refrain from sin. We should turn away from each and every temptation. If we're living the present in light of the future, we don't want to be like the kid who gets up on the counter and gets his hand in the cookie jar right as dad walks in. Right? That's not the situation that we want to be in. We want to be obedient to God. And we do that when we do that. We live godly, holy lives that the world sees. And our lives reflect readiness and obedience second thing he tells us is that we should be looking for the coming day of the Lord. It should be something that we anticipate. Absolutely. I'm not saying don't anticipate the coming day of the Lord. I'm just saying there are still responsibilities that we have to face. But yes, yes, we should absolutely be looking forward to the day that Jesus comes back. It should be a force that gives us hope and calms us in the storms of life when they come, knowing that someday... Someday, everything is going to be made right. Everything. A contemporary philosopher by the name of uh, Dr. Simon Critchley, he's written about how he's so surprised that Christians are, by and large, uh, typically very afraid of death, just as afraid of death as anybody else. Uh, even though we're supposed to be, um, we're supposed to have all these reasons not to fear it based on the Bible. And so he writes... Quote, a detailed national survey from 2003 claimed that fully 92% of Americans believe in God, 85% believe in heaven, and 82% believe in miracles. But the deeper truth of that such religious belief, complete with a heavenly afterlife, brings believers little solace in the face of death. The only priesthood in which people really believe is the medical profession. And the purpose of their sacramental drugs and technology is to support longevity. 
the sole unquestioned good of contemporary Western life. If proof were needed that many religious believers actually do not practice what they preach, then it can be found in the ignorance of religious teaching on death, particularly Christian teaching. Christianity, in the hands of Paul and Augustine or a Luther, is a way of becoming reconciled to the brevity of human life and giving up the desire for wealth, worldly goods, and temporal power. And he goes on to say, but many Christians today are actually leading desperately atheistic lives bounded by a desire for longevity and a terror of death. In other words, what Peter's telling us here, in light of this this comment made by this philosopher, quit living in a way that isn't all that distinguishable from an atheist. Don't live your life the same as an atheist. You don't have to fear death because you know that there's a God. An atheist says, there's nothing after this, and I, I, I fear being evaporated into nothingness. But we have something better waiting for us. We don't need to, uh, to, to worry about death so much that we lose sleep over it. I'm the one that's done that. I don't know about anybody else, but uh, when, when the economy starts tanking, and we've got all these enemies on you know, every continent that we look at, I worry about the future of this country and... If, if I'm not focused on, on this type of thing that Peter's telling us, I might just look at this and, and not say, oh, there's something better coming. So remember that there is something better coming. And if your actions don't reflect what you believe, maybe you don't really believe it after all. That's the harsh reality that each one of us individually has to wrestle with. How do we do that? How do we put our faith into action? Peter tells us. He gives us a hint. The third application here. And this is interesting and exciting. Peter tells us that we should be hastening, quickening, making it come sooner. We should be hastening the coming of the day of God. Here's what Peter's saying. If God seems like he's slow about his promise to return, if the Lord seems like, wow, he's just taken forever to come back, it's because he wants to save as many as possible. But somehow we can hasten his coming. We can make that come sooner than it would otherwise. That's kind of what he's indicating here. How do we do that? By bringing the gospel to as many people as we can. To our co-workers, to our neighbors. There are people in, in our culture who don't know the gospel They'll say, oh, I know what church is all about. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. I don't, I don't need the gospel. They don't know what the gospel is. Friends, there are people in our churches who don't know what the gospel is, who can't articulate the gospel, that Jesus died on our behalf so that we could have fellowship with God, not because of anything that we do, but because we put our faith our trust for salvation in Jesus alone and say, I understand, there's, there's nothing I can do to please God on my own. Only Jesus is perfect. Only Jesus is completely righteous and I need that, so I need him. It's pretty simple. John 3.16, that's as simple as the gospel is and yet a lot of people in our churches cannot articulate the gospel. So there are people in our communities, in our culture today, that need to hear this. And they'll say, I, I don't need to know what it is. They don't know what it is. It's not just people on the other side of the world. It's our next door neighbors who think, well, really Christians just want you to live this righteous life and you've got to be perfect and you've got to live up to this standard and that standard. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we cannot save ourselves, but Jesus can so our response is to live a life that reflects an expectation of Christ's imminent return. We know that it could come any second now. And there's a lot of time that passes between his return and this destruction of the end of the world. We know that there's a thousand-year reign and all that stuff. Really, I'm just trying to hit highlights here. But we do know that this world is coming to an end someday. This is not as good as it gets. It's going to get better. And so we need to be ready for that. We need to participate in Christ's mission of seeking and saving the lost and bringing the gospel to them. One of the things that we're going to be doing, hopefully somebody came into your mind 
as I was just t- uh, as I was telling you about that. Somebody that you know that might need the gospel. This is something that we're going to be participating in, National Back to Church Sunday. It's next month. And you're going to be seeing some, some of these posters hanging around here. We're going to put them up uh, this week. Um, but what I want you guys to be doing is thinking about people that you know. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's somebody in your family who needs to get back to church. Maybe they've been de-churched, meaning they once went to church, but they don't anymore. They, they just don't like it. Maybe it's somebody who is intimidated at the idea of going to church because they've never gone. Plenty of people around here like that. So, please, over the course of the next month or so, be thinking about who you want to invite to that. Because we're going we're to have invitations to give to you guys and everything. That's the day where we really focus Really focused. Of course, we're always focused, but this is a day where we're really focused on reaching people who need Jesus and hopefully hastening the day of his return. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have redeemed us, that you have paid the penalty for our sins, that you have done what needed to be done to make things right between us and you. God, we thank you for the process of purification that we're all going through. God, we know that you use hard times and good times alike to mold us into the image of your Son, to make us more and more like Jesus. God, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts for the day that you return. We pray for the day, Lord. We, we ask that it would be hastened because of the efforts of churches around the world, that you would return and that you would purify this broken and lost world. We look forward to that day, God. But we ask that you would teach us to live each day in light of that imminent reality. In order that we can reach this world with the message that they need. In this message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org. And you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. More beautiful. 